Well, welcome. Good morning. It's good to be with you here today. My name is Roger Rushing. I'm one of the pastors here at New City. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, I have to tell you, I just thought during the early service when Nate was giving his announcements, I thought, you know what? Uh, I probably should have had a Super Bowl joke to open up with, but I don't really know that much about the Super Bowl or football, so I don't know that I could even come up with a joke, so maybe that's a joke. I did not know they were both wearing red or that their colors are both red until this morning, so that joke didn't land for me first service, but it did second, so that's good. Uh, but anyway, welcome. Thank you guys for being here on this day. We appreciate it. Uh, it's so good to get to, to share the word with you today. So I don't know if you are one of the ones that carries around a physical Bible. Uh, if you're not, this isn't to shame you. I don't anymore, hardly. I always have the, the Bible app on my phone because it's so convenient. But I kind of miss the physical Bible. This is one of my old ones. And one of the things I miss about it, you know, you can make all these notes in the margin and stuff. But one of the things I miss is just all the stuff that I used to stuff in my Bible. Uh, so this is, this is one from when I was uh, back in high school. And I was looking through it this week and just seeing some of the different things that are in it. There's letters and some different notes. But one of the things I came across was notes to one of my early sermons. Back when I was 18 years old, I was uh, speaking at a summer camp, and I found this, this sermon that's all about trees. Uh, there were six different trees in that sermon, which just as a preaching note, six is too many if you're going to preach a sermon about trees. Don't use six. Um, also, I picked one of the trees I picked was the tree that Judas hangs himself from. So, you know, pretty uplifting summer camp messages. Uh, but don't worry, I'm not going to give that sermon to you today. I don't know that it was a terrible idea, but it was a pretty terrible sermon. But I do find myself here teaching about trees again, and I don't usually title my messages, but if I was going to title this one, it was going to be The Tale of Two Trees. So not six, so if you wanted to see the Super Bowl, you still can. But there are two trees that I want to talk about today, and the first one is obviously this, this tree that Nebuchadnezzar sees. But before we really dive into all of it, I want us to, to look at the whole chapter of Daniel 4, which, you know, we already made you stand long enough, so we didn't want to read the whole thing. But it's important for us to see what happens throughout all of Daniel 4 in order to see what's going on. So I want us to take an overview of that and just kind of go through a, a little bit of an outline. And the place we start is with the verses that we read today, Daniel 4, 4 through 18. This is Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare. So here Nebuchadnezzar is, and Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. That's the ruling empire of the day. And we've been talking some in this discussion about Daniel about how Nebuchadnezzar kind of becomes this representation of empire in general. Uh, and we've got several representations throughout scripture of empire and these people that kind of embody empire. Another big one would be Pharaoh back from Exodus. So Egypt and Pharaoh kind of embody all of that empire-ness. Later it's going to be Caesar and Rome. Um, but we're learning over time that, you know, one empire is kind of just like another empire, like another empire. And so we have Nebuchadnezzar here, but it could be Pharaoh, it could be Caesar. What's important to know is that the empire is constantly having nightmares. Empire is very rarely at peace. This isn't an uncommon thing for empire to have nightmares. Even Pharaoh that I just mentioned, if, if you know the story back in Exodus and in Genesis, you've got Pharaoh who has a nightmare, and he has to bring Joseph to come and interpret his dreams and to let him know what's going on. Later, the Hebrew slaves that he has become like a living nightmare. He's so afraid that they're going to rise up and overthrow him that he begins to oppress them and do all these horrible things to them. And this is what, what's typical for empires. We've even seen Nebuchadnezzar a couple weeks ago had another nightmare that he didn't understand with this strange statue made of all these different layers and all these different things. And they don't know what it's about, but they're unsettled and they're afraid because empire is always afraid, and empire is usually afraid. You know, they govern, and they have all this power, but they have all this stuff. Sometimes it's even other people's stuff, but they have all this stuff, and the greatest fear is that somebody's going to come and take the stuff. Somebody's going to replace them. 
and somebody's going to take what they have and what they've built up. So empire is always having nightmares, and here we see Nebuchadnezzar having another nightmare. And in this nightmare, he sees this giant tree. And in our minds, we should probably be picturing the cedars of Lebanon. You may have heard of those in the Bible. They appear from time to time. Everybody wanted the cedars of Lebanon for things like building palaces or ships because there were these giant trees and all this kind of stuff. Nothing comes to my mind, though. When I say cedars of Lebanon, I don't picture anything. So if it helps you, I think a better image for us would be like the redwoods, the giant redwoods in California. You've probably seen pictures of those. Those trees just dwarf people. They look like little tiny ants standing next to them. This is the kind of tree that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream. And it's not just any old cedar of Lebanon or redwood tree. It's, it's a giant one, giant even on that scale. And it says that the branches reach up to the heavens. And this isn't just a way of saying it's really tall. They mean this in kind of a literal way, that the, the tree reaches heaven. He becomes like a god, like the ones that's a, the realm of the gods, and that's where this tree inhabits. And the shadow of this tree is cast over the whole world. You can see it from everywhere. And you have all of these branches that provide a home and shelter for the birds and for the beasts, and everybody's eating from its fruit, and it's providing for all these animals. And so this is the vision that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his head, but then everything starts to go south. And so you, you have somebody who comes and chops down that tree, and they strip it of its branches and its leaves. They scatter its fruit. The birds no longer have a home. The beasts no have, longer have security. And those who have been sustained with their livelihood from that tree no longer have food to eat. And so this is a nightmare, but the nightmare continues. And as may be the case in your dreams, dreams are fluid. They're not always making logical sense or linear sense. And we have some of that here. So we start out with a tree, but then we've got all this talk about this guy. And it starts in verse like 14, 15, and then we get to verse 16 especially. It says, let his mind be changed from a man's. So we have this tree that clearly must represent a man, and now you have this man who's going to lose his mind and kind of become like a beast. So he's not tree, he's not, he's not fully man, and he's certainly not fully beast, but he becomes like a beast. He's driven from the, to the edges of society. It says that he's, he just has to eat grass like he's a cow or an oxen. Uh, his hands grow, his, tal- his fingernails grow like talons. Uh, It says that he's wet with the dew of heaven, which means that he's totally exposed. He doesn't have any of that stuff that we have that we typically think of to to comfort us and to take care of us. So he's driven mad, and he's pushed out. And then we get to verse 17. This is an important verse, so I'm going to reread it to us here. It says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end. So it means this is why this is happening, to this end. This is why this is all going to take place that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he will and sets, and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So this verse will actually, that part that I highlighted, that's going to repeat three times. We're not going to read them all today, uh, but it's going to repeat three times in this chapter in three different places. It's obviously significant. This is the reason that this dream is taking place and the things within this dream are taking place. It's to show this and to teach this to King Nebuchadnezzar. So you would think that, I mean, it's pretty clear. You have the meaning of the dream within the dream. Somebody spells out, this is why this is taking place. But yet Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand the dream. He's still confused. He doesn't know what it means. And that's, that's because the dream is this truth from God. It's speaking a truth about the reality as God sees it and as it is for God. The problem is empire doesn't have that same reality. Their imagination can't even contain that reality. To empire, the truth of God is like a foreign language. And so Nebuchadnezzar can't understand the truth even when it's pretty plainly laid out 
that, man, all this stuff's going to happen because you don't see that God is God, right? But he knows enough that he's worried, and so he gathers together all of his intelligence community. He gets the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the magicians, and he asks all these wise men, tell me, like you guys do dreams, what's this dream mean? But the problem is all the people that he calls have also been formed and shaped by empire. They've been eating from that same tree. They've been consuming those same ideas of empire, and so they're so shaped by it that they too can't see what this means. The language is just as foreign to them as it was to Nebuchadnezzar. So then that brings us to verses 19 through 26, and this is where Daniel interprets the nightmare. So Nebuchadnezzar says, then Daniel came to me, and he calls him Daniel there, but he's really quick to remind us as the readers, I changed his name to Belteshazzar. So if you were with us back in chapter one, Daniel and his friends, they had Hebrew names that exalted and praised and, and, and glorified the Hebrew God. But when Babylon takes over these Jews and takes them into exile and forces them into service to the empire, the empire tries to take that identity from them and tries to reshape it. And so they give them names that reflect their gods. So he says, Daniel came to me. You remember Daniel, the guy whose name I changed to Belteshazzar after my god. Okay? And then he just keeps calling him Belteshazzar after that. So he doesn't go back to Daniel. But if you remember, when the king tried to force his Daniel and, and his buddies into service, one of the things was they were supposed to be given food directly from the king's table, the top of the top stuff, creme de la creme. But Daniel and his friends refused to eat the food from the king's table because they knew that if they ate long enough from the king's table, they would become the king's men. They would be shaped by empire. That would become their primary identity. And so Daniel and his friends resisted. So even though their names were changed, their identity wasn't. Daniel never lost his Jewishness. He never lost the fact that first and foremost, he was not the king's man, but God's man. And so in a unique way, this made Daniel bilingual. Daniel still was able to speak and understand and know and was formed and shaped by the truths of God, but he was able then to engage with empire in a way that they could understand he could be the go-between. An interesting fact, by the way, is the book of Daniel, like most of the Old Testament, it's written primarily in Hebrew. But what's interesting is there's a whole section that's in Aramaic, which would have been the Babylonian language, like the language of commerce. And so chapters 1 through the beginning of chapter 2 are Hebrew, and then the rest of chapter 2 through the end of chapter 7 are all Aramaic, and then from chapter 8 it picks back up into Hebrew. And there's lots of scholarship about why this is and different theories and how it came to be this way, and I don't know exactly why all of that happened that way, but I like to think that part of the reason that it came down in a finished product, if you will, that way, is to remind us as a faith community that we too have to be bilingual. So we must learn to be bilingual so that we can engage with the world in meaningful and in powerful ways, but yet never lose our Christian identity. Because if we lose our Christian identity, then we lose any power that goes with engaging with the world anyway. Because our engagement just becomes becoming the world. So we have to ha hold this tension, which is a difficult thing to do, and that's what we see Daniel doing here. And so he explains his dream, and he tells Nebuchadnezzar, dude, you're the tree, right? Like, you're the tree, and Babylon's a tree. You've built this great empire. You're, you're to the point of thinking of yourself as God, and you have to understand you're not God. And so there's going to come a time where you're going to be forced to recognize that. Everything you have is going to be stripped from you. You're not even going to be, you're not going to be a God, but you're not even going to be like a man. You're going to be driven from humanity, from society. You're going to become like a beast in the field. 
And so then we get to verses 28 through 33 where the nightmare becomes a reality. See, here's what I don't get about Nebuchadnezzar. He keeps getting these dreams explained. So he had a, a dream a couple weeks ago about the statue made in all these different layers, and Babylon and he were the golden head. And then it goes all the way down to these brittle feet that are clay mixed with iron. And you see this rock that breaks the feet, and the whole kingdom falls, and then this rock grows to this everlasting kingdom. And Daniel says, basically, look, dude, you and Babylon are not, you are not eternal. There is a greater kingdom. There's going to be all these other empires that come after you that are just like you, but eventually you're going to see there is a kingdom that is greater than all of these that's everlasting, and that's the kingdom of God. That was a message of that dream that Daniel tells to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And what is the message that Nebuchadnezzar gets? Well, if you remember last week, he builds a statue, and he gets, well, I shouldn't make the feet out of clay. He makes the whole thing out of gold. So he gets that the point of this dream is, I'm going to build a better statue. So this guy doesn't get it even when it's told to him. And in this one too, he doesn't get it. Because it says that, that at the end of 12 months, so a year has gone by since the dream, Nebuchadnezzar's walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered, and he's not with anybody, so I don't know who he answered. But anyway, the king answered, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So here he is looking over his great empire, which... Objectively, it was pretty great. We always think of Rome as like the great ancient empire, but Babylon was every bit as amazing, maybe even more so. It's older, so we don't have as much stuff. But think about like the hanging gardens of Babylon that he built for his wife. This is probably one of the things he's looking over. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He had this empire that spanned the known world, and he had built up this huge thing, and so he's looking over something pretty impressive, and he's pretty impressed with himself. And he looks and says, look what I have done in my might and my power. He's believing this lie that he is God unto himself, right? And then it says immediately the dream went into effect. Immediately he lost his mind. He was driven outside of the palace. He was driven to the edge of society. And he became like a beast of the field. Nebuchadnezzar lost sight. He loses sight of that which makes us human. That which separates us from the beasts of the field. And that thing is that we are made in the image of God. So if you go back to Genesis, when God is creating everything, and God creates all the animals, everything that walks on the earth, and everything that swims in the sea, and all the birds that fly in the air, but then there's this break. God does something different. The whole narrative starts to shift, and it's, God says, let's make humanity. But I'm going to make man and woman, I'm going to make them in my image. This is the thing that's going to set them apart. They will not be like the cow or the oxen. They will be different, made in my image. And there's a big difference between being in the image of God and being God. And it sounds like something that's pretty easy for us to understand and to see that difference. But what happens is sin is constantly twisting these words and our thoughts and confusing things. And before you know it, it's not as clear. We think that we can be God's for ourselves. See, at the root of all sin, at its root, is the sin of the idolatry of self, putting ourselves in the place of God. And this can be, you know, it can take different forms and shapes, and you can have a bunch of other idols that go along with it, but at the end of the day, that's what's at the root, that we think we can be God for ourselves. So back in Genesis, we get to chapter 3, we've got Adam and Eve, and God has made this beautiful paradise for them. 
and has told them, hey, you have all these animals to care for and, and take care of the garden and work this, and I'm going to be present with you in this garden. And not only that, but you have everything you could ever need. And so here's all this food you can eat from all of these trees, except one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so it's this huge, expansive freedom with all this permission and a teeny tiny limitation. But if you're like anything like me, we, we humans, we're pretty good at flipping that on its head. We get so fixated on the limitation. And so we look at it and we go, oh, man, I can't have what I really want. Forget all that other stuff. Why, why isn't God letting me have this thing that I really want? And it must have loomed large each day as Adam and Eve passed the tree. And they're looking at it going, oh, I bet that fruit's real good, right? Each day they're passing that and they're thinking it just seems to be looming larger and larger. And then it's into this that that crafty serpent slithers in. And he begins to hiss lies and twist words. And so he comes to Adam and Eve and says, man, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? No, that's not what God said. But he's already twisting things. And then you hear Eve's reply. She says, no, 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 he didn't say we can't eat from any tree. We just can't eat from this one. And we can't even touch it or we'll die. You can hear how the limitation is looming larger and larger, right? God never said anything about not touching it. I mean, it's probably a good idea. Don't touch it, because that's one step closer. But she's just like, yeah, we can't even touch it, or we'll die. And then the snake says, ah, oh, you're not going to die. That's what God had told him would happen. And the snake says, that's not what's going to happen. And he goes on in verse 5 to say the reason that they can't eat from the tree. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and this is the greatest lie of sin. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. You will be like God. And that knowing good from evil, there's an important aspect of that that we need to get. Sometimes we think it means that they didn't know what was right and wrong beforehand. You know, they don't know what it was to do right or to do wrong. But that doesn't really make sense if you think about it, because how could they know that it's wrong to not do what God says? So if God says, don't eat from this tree, you got to know that it's, it's wrong to eat from that tree, that it's right to do what God says and wrong to do the opposite, right? So it's not that they had no understanding of good and evil. The idea in this knowledge of good and evil is the ability to decide for themselves what's good and evil, the ability to define good and evil, to be able to look at something and call it either good or evil. The temptation is to be gods for ourselves, where we get to define right and wrong. And when we do that, not too surprisingly, turns out that most often, the things that we want, hey, those are right. And then these other things, those are wrong. Certainly, the things that benefit you but not me, those have got to be wrong. But the things that I want and benefit, from, benefit me, coincidentally, are always right. And this lie builds on itself, and this is a lie that empire embraces and proclaims, but it's also a lie that empire believes and supersizes. And it leads to insanity and madness. And we can see how it does that, because empire goes around strutting its stuff and says, look, I've got the, the power, I've got the strength, I'm in charge, I'm God here, and so I say what's right and what's wrong. But the craziness is then, empire can never be wrong. Because by definition, whatever empire does is right, right? And so we can see how that loop just feeds itself, and it just leads us to this place of madness and insanity. And it's into that madness that Nebuchadnezzar descends. And so we've got this artist's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar as he becomes less than man, but not quite beast. 
And he's got the madness in his eyes, and his beard's overgrown. He's got talons for hands. He's got skin that looks more like scales and feathers than it does like flesh. And we have this long pause between verses 33 and 34. A long time passes. It says the, the seven times. It doesn't mean seven years. Seven means that wholeness, that fullness. And so here, Nebuchadnezzar is less than man among the beasts. And then finally, after the fullness of time, we get to verse 34 through 37, where Nebuchadnezzar is restored. But verse 34 says this. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Now, remember before, he was looking down and out over his great kingdom, right? Then he was reduced to just looking at the grass like an animal. But now, finally, he can look rightly, and he looks above, and he sees his reason returns to him, and he blesses the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar learns that he is not God. We're going to find that he forgets this lesson pretty quickly, as we sometimes do when we learn lessons. But for a moment, his sanity returns to him when he recognizes that there is someone above him. Someone maybe he doesn't completely understand, but somebody that Daniel's been pointing to, and he finds that he himself is not God, but God is God. So that's our chapter outlined for you. Uh, but if you're paying close attention to the outline, you might have noticed I skipped verse 27. It's not because verse 27 is not important. It's actually the opposite. I want to spend a little more time on verse 27. And I want us to look at it because verse 27 is really the pivot point of this text. So whenever you're reading a, a biblical text, it's helpful to try to, to identify the pivot point, that place that everything turns to and around. It's not always easy to do. But verse 27, I think, is a pivot point of this text. So I want us to read it here. This is after Daniel has explained the dream. So he's like, dude, you're the tree. You're going to be cut down. You're going to become like a beast. There you go. And then the next thing he says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is a radical thing for Daniel to do. Daniel, you remember, he's the powerless Jew. He was the one who was who was conquered in his homeland and enslaved, taken into exile, and put into service to the king. So now he's a ser servant to the king. He has no power over the king. And the only power he has is whatever the king gives him. And the king has called him before himself. He called Daniel before himself to do one thing, to interpret the dream. But here, Daniel in his boldness goes a step further, and he gives a therefore to the king. He gives advice. He gives unsolicited advice to the king, and Daniel speaks truth to power. And he tells the king, hey, this nightmare, it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to be this way. This is the warning. But if the king will break with his sin and humble himself, then he can be spared the humiliation to come. And so he is bold enough to speak truth to power, and the truth that he speaks to that power is not an imperial truth, but a God truth. And he tries to tell him, hey, you've got to break with your sin. It's the same idea as atone for your sins or repent from your sins. You've got to break with your sins and, and seek righteousness and mercy for the oppressed. See, it turns out that the cure for the madness of empire is righteousness and mercy. And Daniel offers that cure to the king. 
Now, mercy, I think we tend to understand. I think that one would grasp a little bit better. Righteousness, at least for me, it tends to be kind of a churchy term. And so we think maybe it means like holy, whatever that means, or it means like being good or nice or moral. Um, but righteousness really at its heart is concerned with right relationships. That's what re righteousness is. The Hebrew word is sadakah. You follow it through, you see it's always concerned with right relationships. And when I say with right relationships, we often jump immediately to our personal relationship with God. So what's most important is my personal relationship with Jesus, as though it exists in some kind of vacuum. And the fact of the matter is, that's not true. It is true that that relationship is important, but it turns out that that relationship is intertwined with and, and also dependent upon our relationship with one another. Because it turns out that we can't have a right relationship with God without having right relationship with others. This is why when they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what's the greatest command? Like, we've got a bunch now. So what's the greatest one? And Jesus immediately says, love the Lord your God with everything that you are. All of your heart, all of your mind, all of your body, all of your soul, all of your strength, every ounce of your being, love God. But he doesn't stop. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because those two are inseparable. Jesus says that the entire law and prophets hang on these two things. We cannot be in right relationship with God while we're not in right relationship with one another. See, empire doesn't understand neighborliness. Because in empire, there are no neighbors. There are commodities. There are people you can use to get ahead. There's certainly people we need to keep down because we're afraid of them. So there's threats. But there are no neighbors. Think of what Daniel's saying to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the cure is, be a good neighbor. Kings don't have neighbors. Kings have servants. But God cares about our neighbors. God cares about our neighbors, especially those who are outcasts, who are poor, who are powerless. And there's a group of people throughout Scripture that come to represent that, that whole grouping of poor and powerless, outcast people. Time and time and time again, the grouping we see is the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. Over and over, the scriptures tell us that we need to, to provide for and care for and be attentive to the needs of the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. And the reason that those three are, are highlighted and brought out is because in a patriarchal society, those are the three who have no legal male to advocate for them. They have no voice. They have no one to stand up for them. They're the ones that's the easiest for empire to take advantage of, to just use up because nobody can speak for them. And God says, I care about your neighbors, so much so that we have to be a people who speaks for those who have no voice. If we have power, we have to use it for the good of the powerless. So this is throughout scriptures, but one of the big places it shows up over and over again is in the book of Deuteronomy. I know it's not a book we spend a lot of time in usually, but the book of Deuteronomy is this, this counter-imperial text. It's after God is bringing his people out of Egypt, and he's trying to, to make them something new and something different. So he's bringing them out of Egypt and he's saying, look, I'm not bringing you out of Egypt just so that you can be a new and bigger, better, badder Egypt. I don't want you to be this new empire. I want you to be a covenant people. And so he begins to, to try to mold and shape them and tell them what does it mean to be a covenant people. And so we get things like the Ten Commandments. And then Deuteronomy, we get the Ten Commandments again. And then the rest of it is all kind of an interpretation of those Ten Commandments. And it's all about how do we live those things out. And over and over and over again, 
those explanations and interpretations focus on, revolve around, or are tied to the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. So we hear things like, there's this festival that's established where everybody brings their harvest together and everybody brings it to the table and you provide and you share in one another's provisions. And in that stipulation, there's this one that says, hey, you've got to invite the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. The one who cannot bring anything to that table is still called to that table and there's still a place set for them at that table. They must be provided for even if they can't provide for themselves. Or another text says that, hey, if you, if you uh, loan, if you have a loan to a, a widow, an orphan, or an immigrant, you can't accept collateral on that loan. And the reason was because the only thing they had was their cloak. And there was this line drawn in the sand that said, hey, you can go this far with this, but, but further than that is dehumanizing. You can't take their cloak from them. And in fact, earlier in the chapter, it talks about taking cloaks from poor people in general. And under some circumstances, it's permitted, but the thing says, but it says, if you do take a cloak and collateral from a poor per person, then you have to take it back to them every night because that's all they have to sleep in. Can you imagine doing that over a 30-year loan? Can you imagine what that would be like? It's almost not worth the effort to go and take it and back to them each night and then pick it up in the morning. But if you did that, think about how that person could never be just a debt, a number, a means. You'd have to look them in the eye every single day, know their family and what's going on in their lives, their home, so that you would always remember that, yeah, this person owes me money, but they are more than that. There's another one that says, hey, all these religious festivals, you've got to you know, do all this worship during all these religious festivals, but it says, but you must always include in your worship the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. Another one says, hey, when it comes time to harvest your grain, you're going to drop some, leave it in the field because it's for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. When you harvest your grapes and some fall off the vine, leave it in the vineyard for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. When you're harvesting olives from your olive branches and they fall on the ground, leave them for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. These are the three cash crops, right? Grain, wine, and olive oil. It's a way for the property class to provide for those who can't provide for themselves, because God says, I care about neighbors, and I'm not okay with having this, this world where the gap between the haves and the have-nots is just accepted. It's the way that it is in order for economy to function. And God constantly reminds the people the reason that, that they're called to do this, God says, is because I brought you out of Egypt when you were slaves and had nothing. So we must always remember that God cares about the widow the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, the powerless, the outcast. There's one more place in Deuteronomy, probably the biggest one. It's all of chapter 15. It's called the year of release. We're not going to read it because it's too long, obviously. But go back and read it. But it's called the year of release. And this is a, a dangerous text. It's totally counter-imperial text because it says that every seven years, you've got to forgive everybody's debt. You've got to forgive everybody's debt. In fact, if somebody's sold into slavery, which was always because of debt, if they were sold into slavery, the longest they can be a slave is six years. On that seventh year, you have to remember that they are more than just a debt. They're more than just a means to get something else. They are a human being, and you have to return their dignity to them and their freedom. And you not just set them free, you have to make a way for them to continue to be free. This is a tough word. It's so tough that God anticipates loopholes, because we like loopholes. So he tries to close them off, and he says, look, if it's the sixth year, and your brother comes to you in need, 
You can't be like, oh, man, I can't help you out. You can't be hard-hearted, he says, or tight-fisted, says both of those. You can't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted, but you have to give them whatever they need. Even though you understand this really isn't a loan, it's a gift because next year is the seventh year and it's all going to be forgiven. There's no way they can get back to you. Because God operates differently and cares about neighborliness. That idea of the year of release, it's carried over into Leviticus. It becomes a year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Eventually, the prophets take it up too, Isaiah being one of the big ones, and talks all about the day of the, the, I mean, the year of the Lord's favor. And what's really interesting is then Jesus picks it up. So if you go to Luke, the beginning of Luke, at the very start of Jesus' ministry, he's been baptized. The very first public teaching we have in Luke's gospel of Jesus is he goes to a synagogue, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah, he unrolls it to that spot that talks about the year of Jubilee. And this is what Jesus says in Luke 4.18. Reading from Isaiah, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus does something crazy. He sits down and he begins to teach saying, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. He says, today is the beginning of Jubilee. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Now I know most of us probably in here have some kind of debt. So you would think we hear that message and we go, woohoo! They did not woohoo. They did not woohoo because the whole system was built on the haves having and the have nots not having, right? And so they saw this as a threat to power, a threat to the way things are. They did not woohoo. They tried to go throw them off a cliff. But Jesus comes proclaiming a new kingdom. He starts proclaiming another way. But here's the thing about Jesus' new kingdom. It's super hard for us to grasp because our imaginations are formed and shaped in so many ways by empire, ways that are so subtle we don't even know sometimes. And it was the same for the people who heard it. Some got angry and tried to kill Jesus, but others who weren't benefiting from the, the empire, they thought, oh, this is good news, right? They started following after Jesus. But even the victims of empire can't see another way. They still think in imperial terms. And so they thought, oh, this is awesome. Jesus is going to come. He's going to overthrow the empire. He's going to set up a new empire, and it's going to be a better empire. And you know how it's going to be a better empire? I'm going to be at the top of it. I've been at the bottom. Now I'm going to be at the top. Man, those guys thought they knew oppression. I'm going to show them oppression, right? Like that's the way they thought. They could only think of it in imperial terms. And so Jesus kept trying different ways to break through that mindset, to stoke their imagination, to put handles on it for them to see what his kingdom was like. And so this brings us to our second tree. Although to call it a tree is a little bit of a stretch. It's really a bush. Sometimes a big bush. You can get like 10 feet, maybe 15 feet, but it's still a bush. It's certainly no great redwood tree or cedar of Lebanon. It's a mustard tree. It's a mustard bush. And so in Matthew 13, 31, Jesus says, Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. (laughs) Not that big. And becomes a tree, so the birds of the air can come and make its nest in its branches. 
So if you were listening to this during Jesus' day, if you were one of the ones sitting there hearing him talk about this, and you were one of the ones who were following along going like, woohoo, let's get this new empire. And then Jesus started telling you that the empire that he's going to establish, this kingdom that he's going to establish, is like a mustard plant. You're not going to be super impressed. You're not going to be super excited. Because mustard was really just a weed. It was an invasive weed that grew out of control. In fact, there was legal provision that you could not plant mustard in your garden. It was against the law. Because if you planted mustard in your garden, it was going to take over your garden and your neighbor's garden and your neighbor's neighbor's garden. So this guy who's sowing mustard in his field, it must have been by accident or he'd be a fool. It's just a weed growing. And in fact, even though they tried so hard to stamp it out, Jesus is probably looking around right now, talking to the people on the hillside, and he's saying, hey, it's like this mustard plant or that mustard plant. It was growing everywhere. It was just a weed. So think about it. If you were going to have a national flag, would you rather have the cedars of Lebanon? I think the cedars of Lebanon are actually a national emblem of Lebanon. But anyway, would you rather have that on your flag or a weed, right? Especially if you're going up against Rome. Rome has lions, and you're going with a weed, right? But not only that, then Jesus says that the birds of the air can come and, and nest in it. And I know we already saw birds in Nebuchadnezzar's, but the words are different. The, word, the ones that we see that always surround the cedars of Lebanon are like the great birds of prey. The honorable, noble birds, the mighty birds would come and nest in the highest branches. The word that Jesus uses here is for those unclean birds that Jews aren't even allowed to eat or touch. The ones who scavenge from the dead. The gross ones. The foul, foul, right? These are the birds that you don't want in your garden. These are the birds that people put up scarecrows or sometimes even walls to keep out of their garden. And Jesus is saying, look, this is my kingdom. My kingdom is for the birds, these birds. My kingdom is for the nobodies, the rejected, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. And the challenge for us is to decide which tree are we going to call home? Which tree are we going to live in? Which tree are we going to live out of? Which tree will shape our identity? The cedar looks like it has a lot to offer, right? I mean, it's big, it's strong, it's powerful. Its shadow just seems all-encompassing, and it looks so real. And the dream of empire promises security and power and freedom, even the chance to be our own God. And in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, remember that the, in that tree, we saw that it, all these birds lived in its branches and it provided all this security for all these animals and all of flesh was fed off of its fruit so it sustained life. That was a dream. But then the tree fell. It was chopped down. And what they had thought was their security, they found nothing. No longer did they have security or power or safety. No longer did they have livelihood, but only chaos and death. Because a dream of empire, turns out, is always a nightmare. But there's one who offers another way, right? There's one who speaks that, 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 that we are not God. That's the truth. We are not God, but that we are in the image of God. One who says that, that there is right and wrong, and that we're not the ones who get to determine what right and wrong is, but that we are so loved by the God who does that even when we do so much wrong, in his mercy and love, he gives us his own son so that we can have a way back. 
There's one whose mantra is neighbor, 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 and who calls us to live radically different lives, even as we live in the shadow of empire. So Daniel spoke truth to empire, even though he was a powerless Jew in exile. And towards the end of, end of John's gospel, we see another powerless Jew brought before empire. This time it's, it's Jesus being brought before Pilate, the representation of the empire of Rome. And he's brought there because the Jewish leadership has decided he's dangerous. All this stuff he's saying, the kingdom that he's bringing, that's not what they want. And so they need to kill him. But the problem is they don't rule. Rome rules. So they don't even have the power to kill him. They have to ask Rome, who has a power of life and death. They have to convince Rome to kill him. So Pilate, Jesus is brought before Pilate, and Pilate begins to ask him an important question. Basically, are you a threat? Are you a threat to the empire? Are you king of the Jews? Do you really think you're going to overthrow Caesar? It's a ridiculous question, but the nightmare and the fear that fuels empire requires him to ask it. And so this is the question that's put forth before Jesus. And then we see in John chapter 18, verse 36, it says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said, what is truth? See, Jesus spoke truth to empire, but once again, empire was incapable of hearing it. They couldn't understand it. Pilate asked what is truth, and if his imperial imagination had allowed him to look past that box, he could have seen that truth was standing right in front of him. And that truth was that Jesus was the full representation, the total embodiment of the truth of God. And Jesus embodied that truth, the way he did that, the way that he lived that out was to give himself up, to give himself away completely and freely give himself away for the sake of the other. It was an outrageous act of generosity. And if we're going to be part of Jesus' kingdom, if we're going to make our home in the mustard tree, if we're going to be called the body of Christ, then we're called to live out that same outrageous generosity. So much so that our unbaptized neighbors, our non-Christian neighbors, will look at us and go, man, what are you doing? That is crazy, right? Or the way Nate's put it before, that we live such questionable lives that people start asking us questions. Because the way that we're living doesn't make sense to them. But then we can speak truth to empire. And we can know that what empire sees as insanity is really the only sane choice. And we can share that freedom. We can call people out of that empire that consumes them, that offers them nothing but fear and anxiety and worry and death. And we can take them from that fruit and we can invite them to eat at a new table where there's love and mercy and grace and life. In a moment now, the band's going to come back up and they're going to lead us through three more worship songs. I'm going to pray before that, and then as they lead us through those worship songs, I'm going to invite us as we do each week to these tables here. We've got tables in the front and tables in the back, our communion tables. And at these tables are two elements, the blood of Christ spilled for us, represented by the cup, the body of Christ broken for us, represented by the bread, and so often we call your attention to these elements as you come to this table, and I want to do the same today 
As you come to the table and you take those elements, I want you to look at them and think about that truth. Think about the fact that I am not God. God is God. And God is the same God who loves me so much that he went to this extent, that he gave me his son, that Jesus bled for me and died for me, that I might receive not judgment, but mercy, not death, but life, not sin, but grace. So I want us to look at those elements, but today I also want to draw our attention to who else is at that table. Who are you eating with? Because this is not a reservation for two. It's not just you and Jesus, right? Who else joins you at that table and think about our right relatedness to neighbor? Think about those who also are part of the body of Christ and the way that we are related to and part of one another. But I also want us to look around and think about who's not at this table yet. Those who are still living into empire, who haven't been told yet that this dream they're seeking is really a nightmare, but that there's a cure for the madness. There's love and mercy and grace available to them. Who still needs to hear that in your life? But also look around and see those who've been so beat up by empire that they've bought into the lies that empire have fed them from day one that they are not worthy to sit at a table like this. That they're not worthy to come and receive that grace and the mercy and the love because they're just as worthy as any of us. And we're worthy because it's Jesus who invites us to that table. So think about who's not at that table today. And as you come and you take those elements, think about taking those elements with you out of this place and being the body of Christ broken for the people in your neighborhood. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for making another way. God, sometimes the parts of our heart have gotten so packed down and we're so hard-hearted that generosity is difficult, that living into this other way is difficult, that seeing anything other than the overpowering, overwhelming shadow of empire is difficult. I pray today that, that the roots of your kingdom would take hold and break up that ground, soften our hearts, that we might know what it is to be loved by you, but that we, out of that abundant love, might love others as you, as you have called us to love. God, thank you for reminding us that, that we are not God, but you are God. And God, we pray that your will will be done, that your kingdom will come in our hearts, in our lives, in our neighborhoods, just as it is, as it is in heaven. We ask these things in your name. Amen.